Welcome to Business Book Talk, the best place to discover great business books. Bob Garlick has talked to over 400 authors, and his questions and comments always get you the best information about the book, the author, and the ideas behind each book. So let's see who Bob's talking to this week. Hey everybody, it's uh, Bob Garlick here, and I've got Spark, How to Lead Yourself and Others to Great Success. I've got Angie Morgan on the line today. And Angie, before we jump too deep into the interview and the book, uh, you've got a couple of co-writers. So let's start the, uh, the show by just chatting a little bit about Courtney and Sean. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Uh, Courtney and I, we actually served together in the Marine Corps. So we've known each other for, I hate to say, 20 plus years because I can't believe time has flown by like that. And um, we co-founded a leadership development consultancy. And so that was about 13 years ago. And since then, we brought on contractors or employees, actually. And Sean Lynch was one of them. And Courtney and Sean have the same last name, but it's not a husband and wife duo. They actually, Courtney is married to her, to Sean's awesome brother. And so that's the that's the last name relation. And the thing that unites Courtney, Sean, and I is we all served in the military. Sean um, is our fellow Air Force men. And... We uh, really, again, having that military shared background, we love to talk leadership and we love to talk about our military experiences, especially as they relate to those in the private sector. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've, I've done several interviews where uh, somebody was in the armed forces or in the military or, or, or in some heavily organized um, organization which pushes leadership because they understand that that's a critical part of the success of um their functionality, and it's it's almost like this seamless transition from military experience into management. You know, it it, it seems kind of obvious, but a lot of people that are going and and serving their country, they they're not thinking, oh yeah, I'm I'm going to be in the army because that'll make me a better manager. But when they come <laughs> no, out, they thinking about yeah. exactly. It's like, am I going to make it through boot camp? Is the first thing that they start asking themselves. But I want to ask you. Why is that? Why aren't people understanding that, that that's one of the major benefits of going to an organization that's got everything kind of figured out? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with so few people actually serve. So less than 1% of our society here in America um, actually go into the military. So there are a lot of, you know, closely held secrets apparently related to the leadership development guidance. And I also think um, along those same lines, so again, not a lot of people know, but also I think when most people join the military, they're doing um, it just it for other reasons. They don't think, gosh, I'm going to, again, to your point, I'm going to go be a leader. It's going to help me prepare for my career success as a follow-on opportunity. I think most people are running towards the military in general because they, they see something within themselves that is either inspired to serve or they they want to do really cool things or they want to go see the world. Or again, it's, 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 it's very personal. They aren't thinking beyond the experience. Well, and uh, also with sports, you know, you have um, a lot of professional athletes that make a ton of money, but they have a very short career span. I mean, you know, five years, 10 years if they're lucky, and 99% of them, they go into business because they, 
that's another thing about a sports organization. It's very strict. It, it's it's military and it's it's well not in, in this discipline, but but in the way things are done, there's a rule for everything. If you don't turn up, you get penalized. So you're kind of trained and you get used to that environment. And that's the same environment that a large organization kind of runs in. There's rules, there's regulations, and the people that figure out how to use those rules and regulations um, and help the company in that particular direction seem to do very well. Yeah, absolutely. I think having the structure is definitely key, though it's funny as you were talking about those going into to sports with the potential to make lots of money. The military certainly isn't a <laughs> quick scheme, but the intangibles are those that, like the leadership skills development, are exactly those skills that um, do help a lot of transitioning veterans find success quite quickly um, in the private sector. Now, um before we, you know, go down the rabbit hole of, of uh, you know, just comparing everything to the military, um, for you, was that the the thing that brought you forward? Like, you know, you went into the military, you did all the training, you you um, got to a certain level. I mean, I don't have my notes here, but was it captain, I think it was? Yeah, absolutely. So to be a captain, for people that know nothing about the military, um how, what does it take to become a captain? You have to obviously show some sort of leadership, or is if you just hang out long enough in your platoon, you, they make you a captain? Well, I think it starts um, understanding, you know, the two different paths that you can go into. You know, from high school, you can enlist. And the path that I chose, um, I went to college and then became an officer. And the promotion pathway to being an officer, you certainly have to, you know, do, do the basics. Um, you have to, you know, know your military, you know, knowledge. You need to be tactically and technically proficient. You need to, you know, know how to lead a, lead a platoon, and you have to develop expertise in your focus area. So I had a job like anybody else does in the military. It wasn't infantry. It was in public affairs, and so it's just, just really, you know, I think striving for excellence. You know, staying committed and keeping your head in the game, you're going to get promoted. And so, you know, for me personally, I mean, it wasn't necessarily those things that took me into the Marines. I think I was attracted by just the idea of of the Marines themselves. Um, you know, this is a group of very confident, um, very competent, um, highly skilled closely knit group of professionals. I wanted to be a part of that. I, I don't think I was born a leader. Um, I, I don't necessarily think I was born with oodles of confidence either. Uh, but that was something I certainly got from the military. And then when I transitioned, um, I learned how to, you know, really understand what about this Marine Corps experience needs to stay with the Marine Corps because not everything transfers. But what, what could I really build upon in the private sector? Do you think that uh, proper planning and and uh, knowing where you're going basically equals confidence? I think that um, proper planning certainly does help, and having you know a vision certainly does as well. But one of the interesting things I found about confidence is that it's an emotion, and like any emotion, that it can get managed. And I didn't know until I started I started doing research on confidence was that um, you know it really is connected to so much of our success in life. It you know our confidence level, 
you know, helps direct us towards specific goals. Um, it helps us handle failure when we experience it or setbacks when we experience. And even just a small thing, like whether or not you think you can or you can't, you're, you're typically right. Like it's, it's, it's connected to the outcomes that we experience. And I just, I need to attribute that quote to Henry Ford, you know, whether you think you can or can't, you're right. So I think having the understanding that confidence is an emotion helps anyone at any place they are in life realize that if it's an emotion, like any other emotion, it can be managed and developed and nurtured. You can build off of it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, like the inside of the book, the core of the book. You've got uh, seven leadership behaviors or, 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 or patterns or something you should strive for, kind of like an internal goal. Um, let's go over all seven of them. Um, and then uh, we'll dig down into a couple that I'm very, very interested in. So for, for our listening audience, what are the seven leadership behaviors? Great question. It's interesting if you think about like the leadership behaviors, um, there's no one that is more important than the other. It's actually the combination of all the spark behaviors that we talk about that allows professionals to be you know, successful. And with it, we start off by talking about the true definition of leadership because leadership is often misunderstood. And so we do spend some time um, combating myths around leadership to help people understand it's, you know, behaviors, not necessarily, not at all, actually a job title. <laughs> and, and that's a big difference. You know, again, it's not about the place you hold on an organization chart. There are a lot of bad bosses out there who are not leaders. So it's not about a job title. It's about your behavior. And then we take our readers on a journey where we start talking about their character. You know, the who, what are their values? Because your values manifest into your character. What are those, those things that are most important to you? And how do you, or perhaps don't you express them? One of the things I find interesting about your character is that there's a phenomena called the Galatea effect. And it's been studied um, extensively that, you know, if you have a solid sense of your values and they're present in your life, you're better able to act in accordance with them. So your values can become self-fulfilling prophecies, which I think is interesting. Um, and then we talk about the role of credibility, accountability, um, the role that even acting with intention plays, you know, how you make decisions that matter to you and matter most to the teams that you're a part of. We focus on service-based leadership. We do talk a lot about confidence, but the last chapter we liked to, we wanted to end on was about the concept of consistency, uh, because I think anybody who's worked in the, you know, worked at all, whether it's public or private sector, values, you know, values individuals who are dependable, who you can count on, and there's some rigor associated with being consistent. Yeah, I it, the. Leadership is such an unusual skill set, and and I think it can be learned. But there are people that are, are you know, natural leaders, um, and there's a lot of people that are delusional leaders too. So <laughs> exactly, how and do I you say that they're probably not leaders? I mean, we may call them leaders, but they're not if they're delusional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they call themselves leaders, or they're pushing yes. people like a leader, but everybody's going like, "What? Who is this idiot?" Um. So how, how does somebody learn to be a great leader? Or if they're already a, a natural leader, how do they um, become better at leading? Is it to actually not be a boss, but be somebody that has a vision and actually just go ahead and go for it and then say, hey, guys, come on, I'm going this way. Why don't we all go together instead of pushing people, say, go over there, go do that? 
I think that's the start of it. And so how I define a leader is someone who influences outcomes and inspires others. So if you want to be a person of influence and you want to inspire people so you don't have to boss them, they're influenced and inspired enough by your example that they'll come along, there certainly are behaviors with that. And a lot of those behaviors, it's it really starts with a personal journey, um, is centered on self-awareness. I think that's one of the most important things for anyone to really consider is how self-aware are you? Because the most important relationship you have as a leader is the one with yourself. So do you know your strengths? Do you know your weaknesses? Do you, are you open to receiving feedback on your blind spots? I mean, somebody around you might be holding on to a critical piece of information that if you had access to it could help you develop in really important ways could be something small even you know maybe you spit when you talk or maybe you don't (laughs) give information clearly or or maybe when you're really busy you you um you know grip onto information like it's power like small details like that i think are really critical so self-awareness is key and and in our book we do spend a lot of time um getting you know helping people get inside their own heads to think about who they are and more importantly, who they want to be. Well, self-awareness, that's just such a, uh, a difficult thing to, to do uh, because every day when you wake up, you're slightly different. Uh, and I think you have to have the trust of the people around you and belief that when they're telling you stuff, they're not just goofing around to get you in trouble. These aren't you know, your college buddies that are doing stuff to make you look silly. These are people that are concerned about you being a great leader or, or being a, a great dad or whatever. So, yeah, I think a lot of people try and figure it out by themselves or go to people outside of an organization um, or and outside of the industry you're in and chat with them and, and maybe get bad advice. So, you know, as a leader, if you're reaching out and, and asking people, what about this, what about that, at what point do you have to say, okay, that's nice and everything, I'm starting to see a pattern, I will change that pattern. But at the end of the day, you have to make the decision, you have to lead yourself and say, okay, I'm going to change this way, I'm not going to change that way because I think it will make me less of a leader. It's still a personal decision. Oh, right. Again, it's like getting people's feedback and input. It's ultimately up to you to decide what you want to do with that information. And I would and I would say, I mean, I, I think, again, my journey, I think, through self-awareness, again, I was aware that self-awareness was important, started a while ago. And I think about just things I picked up and along along the way that were useful and some things that weren't useful. And, and even recognizing, um, you know, knowing myself well enough to be able to say, you know, they said this, but I think they mean this. And I may have gotten 10 pieces of feedback, but I really think if I do this one, it's going to really address the core issue of what they're getting at. And so having a level of candor with yourself versus thinking that you're a finished product, right? I think um, we we talk about this um, in Spark is that we underestimate the amount of change we have, you know, as adults um, left to experience. I think you know, any professional can say, you know what, between the ages of zero and 20, I changed a lot. I mean, that's obvious, you know, when you look at children growing up, they've changed a tremendous amount. But a lot of, you know, late professionals in their peak years think, I'm not going to change that much. I am who I am. And we are wrong, actually. There's a lot of really great research um, that shows that we underestimate. And because we underestimate, that we may, um, you know, fail to take our development seriously or, not sh- not make our goals so high or you know just 
again, not, not take risk when risk is really what we need. And so I think that's when we think about the leadership development process, that's what I get most excited about is just how much potential we all have if we're open to even considering it. Hmm. You mentioned something very interesting there, uh, tough goals or, or high goals. Um, do you think that uh, a lot of leaders have a hard time setting goals that are ridiculous? So at least if they strive for something that's almost impossible, they're going to get way, way further down the road than if they just go for mediocre goals that are easy to accomplish. Yeah, there's a great article I once read um, called The Pygmalion of Management. And it was relates to uh, setting goals, high but achievable goals. Um, you know, again, if you've never ran a marathon or even a 5K, you know, if you, you know, if you're really just one of those couch athletes that if you just like, I'm going to run a marathon in five weeks from now. And, you know, the next day you get out and run and you're sore and you can't do it. Well, your goal was way too high. It wasn't achievable, but there is a stretch goal there. And there's something motivational, inspiring about stretch goals, mediocre goals, you lose motivation because you can do it. You're not really challenging yourselves. So I, I think about just, you know, human psychology and, you know, who say like, who are we? What do we want? But most people want to achieve. Most people want to better themselves. A lot of people can realize that when their goals are too low, they're not going to get the growth that they experience that they want to experience. Do you think also that people just don't realize what they can actually achieve? They don't really truly believe what they can do. I mean, one of the things that happens if you go to boot camp is it pushes you beyond anything that you could ever imagine your body could ever do. And you got this like, huh, that's amazing. I feel sore, but I cannot believe I actually did that. Um, and then you do it again and again and again. Then it's it's just a, a retraining. Same thing with sports. Same thing with anybody that's uh, been in business for a long time. It's like, wow, we went for that goal and we actually got there. That's amazing. Maybe I should be trying for more. Um, do you feel people just don't believe in themselves enough? I think that that's a very true statement. And you're absolutely right. Military training. I mean, half the things that I did during training, I never thought I could never see myself doing. And so you surprise yourself, you know, when somebody else has that expectation on you and you surprise yourself with your ability to achieve it, it's transformational, which is really part of the boot camp or officer candidate school experience. It is a transformational environment. And so I've, I've had those experiences young in life. And likewise, as a coach and through the work that I do with LeadStar, I, I see it all the time, you know, individuals and or teams that perhaps don't have a lot of confidence. They don't have a lot of moxie in the type of goals that they set. But when they do and they achieve it, I mean, there's, gosh, there's nobody happier, I think, than me just because you get to observe, you know, the surprise that they see in themselves. So yeah, I think a lot of people underestimate their potential and they don't explore it, which one of the things that, that, that um, is interesting to me is that a lot of the ideas that we have about ourselves, we're not even the authors of. We just kind of pick these ideas up through life without really questioning it. So oftentimes just our thoughts alone are the thing that are limiting us. That's interesting. We, we don't author our own thoughts. Um, and I, I guess that makes sense. You know, it's uh, the way you were cheated as a child. Um, you failed at certain sports. You were embarrassed once because you tripped, because, uh, you know, so many things. Or, or speaking engagement where you were asked to speak and it was a terrifying experience. So with the rest of your life, it's like, I'm not a good speaker. But you might be an amazing speaker. It goes back to the Wiley Coyote concept where... If you don't go after that roadrunner with the same device at least twice, you're not really doing a really good job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your uh, aha moment when you were taking all this knowledge and experience and putting it down into a book. 
what what was something that you already kind of knew was true, but when you wrote the book, it became crystallized. It's like, wow, now I truly get that. <laughs> well, I think that my aha moment, um, aha moments always relate to just those simple sayings and platitudes that people have about life um, how, and cliches, how true they actually are. <laughs> and so <laughs> I've tried to think of what it, of course, I'm not coming off the top of my mind. But I think one of the things that Marine Corps does really well is they give you sayings and truisms and cliches and you hear them over and over and you roll your eyes and you think, oh, that's dumb. But then, you know, something simple in life happens and you, wow, that, and that simplicity, there's some powerful guidance and advice. So I think those are my uh, aha moments are around, um, well, and I think as it relates to leadership, like it's simple to understand, you know, being a leader is so simple to understand, demonstrating leadership behavior, especially when you're maxed, like you're stressed, you're tired, you, you know, don't need one more thing to do in your life and you get surprised. I mean, it's really hard in those moments to be a leadership. So you can understand leadership all you want, but if in the moments that you're tested, you can't demonstrate it, that's what matters most. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the four keys to being credible because, uh, you know, there's been a lot of books out there uh, about trust and and credibility is trust. Um, How do you um, deal with that type of situation? Yeah, uh, it's funny how every it seems right. Everything is about trust. It seems, and yet you know, especially in business environments, nobody really wants to talk about trust. It's kind of that soft thing that um, can make people a little bit uncomfortable. But we do talk about credibility um, in the book. We dedicate a whole chapter to it. And the four keys that you're referring to are, um, you know, knowing what is expected of you. So understanding and meeting the standards of others. Um, Having a very narrow say-do gap. And that is, again, the space between your actions and words. And then just sharing your intentions and expectations with others. So you're setting up themselves to be credible too and then when others fail to meet expectations that you have actually that conversation with them that accountability based conversation about what they've done wrong what I've found most interesting about credibility is that I can influence whether or not you know for example you you think I'm credible credible I can influence that through my behavior but ultimately you're the one who determines whether I'm not, I'm credible to you. And so basically you hold all this information about what makes me, Angie Morgan, credible. And it's up to me to try to figure that out, what those expectations are. You know, I can influence it. Like I, I can watch my say-do gap, you know, what I say and what I actually do. I can make sure that space is small because that's where trust is built. You know, I can communicate effectively to you, but ultimately you're going to determine it. And so what we offer our readers is just some examples of how to try to figure out what people want from you, what people expect from you. And if you can put yourself in other people's shoes and just try to gain their perspective of your performance through their eyes, you can start to see what matters most to them. Hmm. And it's very interesting there, you know, part of trust is is the ability to trust what others are telling you. Kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about, of being about aware of yourself by asking others, um, Am I being a jerk? Am am I being angry or being conscious enough to say, hey, guys, I'm kind of in a grumpy mood today. So if I'm getting a little aggressive, just call me out on it. I'm cool. I need that type of feedback. Yeah. And that's self-awareness too, knowing yourself so much Um, (laughs) to be able to say, I'm in a grumpy mood. Give me feedback if this is how this is impacting, you know, the, the group environment. 
Yeah. Well, but that's also being part of a leader where people like, anytime I've run into somebody that is that open, I say, gosh, you know, I should be more like him. Or I know I was a jerk in a meeting three days ago. I should call some people up and apologize. Yes. And that's that's absolutely key. I think, again, our credibility, if, if I were to say that there's two two areas where trust is most formed, it's through those moments in which we build credibility with others and also through our character. And that's going back to our manifestation of our values. I mean, we want to work with, and, and not just work with people, we want to be surrounded by people who have character. They are who they say they are. They have integrity. And they are credible. And they seek to de- develop credibility. And so it's with um, character and credible. It's the combination of both. I mean, maybe you've worked with somebody who was had great character, but they weren't really credible. So they were a really good person, but they were kind of flaky. You know that trust with them didn't go so far or vice versa somebody who was very credible like they did what they say they were going to do they worked hard to meet your expectations but they lacked character they didn't meet expectations perhaps in ethical ways or what you would deem would be ethical so again it's really that marriage of those two qualities i think that's important you know very interesting on on the ethical side of things because Ethics to one person may not be ethics to another person, and they're not doing it because they're an evil or a bad person. They're just doing it because that's their slant on life. And that goes back to being having open, upfront conversations with people. Like, it's like, why, why, do you, why do you want to do it that way? To me, that doesn't seem right. And then they, if they have the opportunity to explain why, you might go, oh, actually, that's a brilliant idea. I never would have thought of it that way. It's not that they're trying to be sneaky. That's just that's the way that their brain is wired. That's the way their personality is wired. So for you, you might feel uncomfortable about what they're asking to do or plan to do. But actually, it makes a lot of sense if you see it in their eyes. Uh, yeah, and that's part of you know part of being a strong leader is to really try to obtain their perspective. Again, it's not to change who you are. It's really just to recognize that you are one person among many, and there's other ways to go about doing things to get a better outcome. So I think humility. I, I think I'd put that in the character bucket. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an important characteristic. Um. Let's talk a little bit about um, fear. Uh, I think it's one of the, the biggest things that holds back a leader, like the, the fear of failure or the fear of um, people not respecting him, whatever. Uh, do you feel that, that people just don't know how to deal with it? And, and when I'm saying deal with it, not even use the word fear. They're terrified of admitting that they're scared of doing something because then people won't think they're a leader. Yeah, I, th- I do believe that fear drives a lot of unproductive behavior, meaning that, you know, fear can paralyze you into not taking risk. Fear can limit, you know, your confidence in moments when you need it most. You know, fear can, you know, especially fear of repercussion, it can prevent you from demonstrating accountability when you've done something wrong. And I remember, you know, in my time in the Marines, thinking about fear and, and learning about fear and just being reminded that fear is a natural human response to threats or danger or when you, you know, again, just to situations in which we feel like we're going to get in trouble. But as a leader, it's important to acknowledge your fear and recognize that courage isn't, you know, courage. There has to be fear for there to be courage or else you're just, you know, demonstrating actions. So there's really no such thing as courage 
in the absence of fear. Courage is action despite your fears. And so it's to acknowledge your fears, but yet take the anecdote and that's action. And so I think for, you know, leaders who, and again, a lot of people in business environments aren't necessarily vulnerable to say, I'm afraid or I'm really scared about this, or I don't want to do this because I'm just so nervous about my reputation this moment. No one will probably admit that who struggles with fear, but I think the leaders who do bring people along because they showcase a level of vulnerability that um, can be inspiring. You know, as long as you, you know, as long as you caveat that with action, like, you know, if we do this, um, I, I, I am nervous that it may not work, but I believe this is the right course of action. Having a, a vulnerable or human leader is really difficult in the sense that it is inspiring, but it's also terrifying for the people underneath them as well. It's like, wow, this guy is so open and honest. Maybe I should open up. And then when you do open up, some idiot decides, ha ha, I'm going to jump on this guy and impress the boss. What happens in those situations? Should the boss kind of pull the person aside and say, hey, you know, after the meeting, say, dude, you should not do that. That person is trying to become a good leader. And what you're doing is showing me that you're a terrible leader. Get it together. Backstabbing. Yeah, absolutely. Gossiping behind. I think that those types of behavior, backstabbing, gossiping, um, they, they show people the type of leader you are or the type of non-leader you are. Um, hopefully to most managers, they'd be able to see that. But I think the goal for any manager is to recognize that you keep the culture and you know what you do and what you say really matters. It sets the tone for others. So if you tolerate gossip, if you tolerate backstabbing, it's going to happen. But if you don't, it won't. And if you, you know, inspire and praise and reward high performance, you'll get high performers. And if you treat low performers like high performers, um, you're, you're probably not going to go very far in your you know organization because there's going to be a sense of injustice in your environment. And so I think for managers, sometimes you have to take a really hard look at the culture you're building and ensure that if you know it's the reflection of what you want it to be. I was working with a supervisor late, recently and he was telling me that everybody in his team had such poor morale and he was blaming the culture and he was blaming the company and he was blaming on all these things and I'm just like hey I got to tell you if your team has terrible morale it has nothing to do with your company it has everything to do with you. You set that tone. He didn't like that answer, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was honest. Yeah, but if he was a great leader, you can not like something. I, a lot of times I get told things by people and say, geez, that person's a complete jerk. I hate that person. Ugh. You know, all the things that go inside your head to defend your personality. And then, you know, four hours later or the next day you woke up and said, man, that person was spot on. I, I got to go thank them. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it takes... Um, a little time to process those emotions, right? <laughs> <laughs> so for some people, it takes a lot longer time to say, you were right and I was wrong. <laughs> some people never get to that, to be honest with you. But yeah, it's important to be able to process those emotions. That's very interesting. You know, some people never get around to realizing that they were in the wrong. How important is it for them to actually get to that point if they're going to grow in an organization? Well, I think it'd be really key for them. Again, it depends on what their organization values. You know, organizational cultures are always really interesting. And so it's what is valued in the organization. I always like to talk to professionals just to take a pulse of, you know, just their organization. What truly is valued here? How do you really succeed here? And healthy 
performance leadership organizations are ones that don't tolerate, you know, arrogance or don't tolerate you know, the uh, people who are shirking responsibility. Performance organizations value accountability. They value people. And I think as just human capital is critical in the knowledge economy that we that we work. And so businesses have to think more and more about the type of environments they're building to ensure that they can optimize the talent that they have. Yeah, well, I mean, that that's a good point, you know, optimization of your existing talent. I mean, you're, you're dealt whatever hand you're dealt in your department, and how you build that department really determines your ability to sit down with everybody in the department if you've got that luxury of time and try and figure out who those people are, what their weaknesses are, and how you can basically help them grow and then the people that refuse to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Correct. As a leader, how do you do that? How do you get rid of people? I mean, that's one of the toughest things to do is let somebody go because it's a very emotional thing and and especially these days when it's so hard to get another job. Um, should you follow them off to another part department or just realize, you know, this person is not healthy for this company, so they got to go. I think the best thing that I always advise people to do is if you have a non-performer working for you, is you have to hold yourself accountable first. Have I done everything I can to coach and develop this person? Have I set the standard? Have I modeled the standard? Have I been fair in the application of the standard? So you really have to go through yourself. And, you know, you might realize, like, you know what? No, I haven't coached and developed them enough. I've been irritated by them plenty, but I haven't really rolled up my sleeves to try to help them improve. And so you have to hold yourself accountable first. And after doing that and creating a clear path towards success for that individual, I mean, if you can honestly say, like, I have done everything I could possibly do with them, then it might be time to let them go. I think the greatest disservice sometimes that can happen is if they get transferred to another department. Um, it, it could be though that they're in the wrong seat or they have too much responsibility, you know, as it relates to their capabilities. Those situations always occur, but I think it starts with a leader being accountable and having the courage to let somebody go. And that's a tough one. And it's it's not like a instant overnight conversation. It's probably a series of conversations and time and intervals in between. I once heard um, a Marine general talking about, you know, loyalty over performance, because sometimes why we won't fire people is just our tremendous loyalty towards them. But he always, this, this general talked about having performance first, loyalty second. And just really, you have to really focus on performance, especially in organizations where loyalty over performance rules because people get a sense that things aren't fair. Mm -hmm. That's just not a fair environment. Now, in the back of the book, in your conclusion, uh, you've got inspiring more sparks. And I think this is a brilliant section in the book. Um, you know, getting more people on board with this philosophy, the spark philosophy, I'll call it. Um, how do you do that? How, you know, because that's a huge uh, stumbling block for many, many people that love to re-educate themselves by reading many, many business books is they're reading stuff. They're getting all these aha moments. They're getting all inspired. And then they go into work on Monday or Tuesday and they realize like, oh my gosh, I'm working with a bunch of idiots who aren't reading and aren't up to snuff. How do I communicate this? How do I get more people on board? How do I create, in this case, more sparks? That's a Great question. And I think the solution that many professionals um, are turning towards, specifically with Spark, um, our group learning environments, our book clubs, are initiating more self and team led 
learning and development opportunities, not waiting for corporate to come down and say, you need to go to this training. They're just doing informal learning and development, even watching, um, you know, TED Talks together, listening to podcasts such as these. So I feel like there's more and more of those type of individual initiative and small team initiative going on to help people realize how they can grow and develop their leadership skills. And so with Spark, we have many resources online at sparkslead.us. So Sparks lead us, but it's .us. And just a you know, free downloads, free worksheets to facilitate those type of learning um, initiatives. And so that's, again, just one of many ways that we see this being accomplished. Um, for you, what would you recommend our listeners do today to move towards their personal spark uh, evolution within the organization other than just going out and buying the book? <laughs> so then the next thing would be reading the book <laughs> would be number two. No, I mean, I think that they have to appreciate that leadership is a development process. And in all reality, reading is the lowest form of learning. I read all the time and it's just hard to retain the things that you're learning. So my guidance to individuals is try to practice one or two things that you can do differently. That's where your greatest growth is going to come from is the experience and the experimentation that you can get from learning. And so even if you just read one chapter and you know, thought about it a little bit, had that reflection period, and just tried one or two things, that's a great start. I mean, a lot of people who I would say purchase business books are interested in the genre. They've got a lot of curiosity around growth to begin with. They're perfectly poised and primed to develop themselves, but it's recognizing you don't have to change fundamentally. It's just one or two small things that if you could try and practice and implement, you could be well on your way. Yep. I think one of the biggest tips you can get from reading, you know, more than five business books uh, a year is to start seeing patterns where you get excited in the books. It's like, oh my gosh, that's me. It, it just, it's, it's a great way to get reflections on how you perceive yourself if you're too shy or the people you're working with won't give you actual information because that's one of the things we talked about in this interview is like, oh, go out and ask people where you're failing and go ask people what they think of you. Well, if people don't say, oh, you're great, don't worry about it, that's completely useless. So by reading a book, um, you can get those aha moments in the book and say, oh my gosh, I think that. Well, then stop, reread that chapter and really, you know, think about it because the book is telling you how you are. And there you go. You're, you're so true. It's, you talked earlier about aha moments. They can come anywhere, but often it requires you to sl- stop and slow down and be a little bit more intentional with your thinking around subjects to get those growth moments. Now, um, I wanted to ask you also for uh, organizations that are you know, growth-based organizations, they're, they're, you know, because there, there are, there's flat organizations that have been around for like 50, 80, 100 years, and they're basically a bureaucracy. And what they need is an ability to do stuff uh, to the nth degree uh, so there's consistency because that's all they need to do is just get those widgets out the factory as consistently as possible. But there's also growth organizations that are just growing. They're young, they're, they're technical, um, technology-driven, they're in a part of the economy that's exploding. For organizations that are in in massive growth, that's a very tricky time. It's a very dangerous time for an organization. 
if you're a spark and have a spark philosophy in an organization like that, what should you be looking for and how should you be utilizing the spark philosophy to help um, build a company, obviously, but also build it in a controlled way so you don't spiral out of control? One of the earlier clients was Facebook prior to their IPO, which was really an interesting time. And we certainly got to observe some sparks. And one of the things I think most impressed us and was really a true opportunity was just how they were being very intentional and purposeful around culture. Things were moving fast. People were moving fast. Opportunities abounded. Yet thinking about how to you know, use language to reinforce cultural intentions, to being able to hold people accountable to the culture that they were aspiring towards was really key. And also, too, I think for companies, like especially if, if you're caught up in a growth firm, um, trying to anticipate um, what the organization needs before the organization can articulate it is key, not just to your advancement with that organization, but also just to help the organization think about the future a little bit clearly. You know, for example, we worked at Facebook with an account manager and they were bringing all these sales professionals on board. And this was a new market in which they were selling in. And she, she made the point of saying, if we're going to bring all these people in, they're going to need training and development. Let me do that part. So I won't do account managing. I'll just create this new opportunity. And her manager was like, oh, my gosh, that's a great idea. You're right. This is a true need. And she just created an opportunity for herself where she was able to flourish. So I think like th opportunities like that. So certainly be intentional with culture, but also think about the future and how you can best serve it through your talents. Hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it goes always all the way back to being conscious of your environment, conscious of your of what's going on in work. And a lot of people are pretty darn unconscious when they're at work. They've just got this, ah, you know, get through the day or keep my head down so I don't get in trouble. And then there's other people say, well, you know, what's going on? How can I improve? And I think those are the sparks. Those are the people that are going to get noticed by management. They're going to do well. Their departments are going to flourish because they're not just trying to do their job. They're trying to do their job in a way that's going to help the other departments around them. And the only way you can do that is if you're conscious of the other departments around you or the other people around you, at least. Yeah, and building those relationships. I was last week at a client site and it was an oil and gas company, you know, Fortune 500 firm, been around for quite some time. And one of the individuals I was talking with, he just had a level of conscientiousness I hadn't seen represented throughout the organization. And I was really moved by that. And I was asking him, I'm like, you really care. You really treat, you know, again, you break down silos. You think about the organization's mission. You try to align your actions to your mission. You're thinking about your career. And and I was just really overall impressed. But, but he was a spark. I mean, he just stood out just by doing the things that you were talking about. You know, for people that are in a, a spark situation or are realizing, oh my gosh, I am a spark, um, how do you get more people on board to, to, you know, do more stuff? I mean, we've kind of talked about that a little bit, but I mean, do you just do pick out one person and, and kind of explain a little bit and say, hey, look, I just read this amazing book. You got to read it. I think I'm a spark. I think you are too. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your spark badge and our yeah. special handshake. I like that, actually. Um, <laughs> I think about just, you know, the, I, I've been interested in the concept of tribes lately, you know, again, about groups and using groups to 
do great things and how do we use people, you know, how do we work with and through people to achieve great results? So I think that that's one way. I mean, it's understanding the behaviors that, you know, through Spark that we've defined as leadership behaviors and being able to identify them in people. And sometimes the people that you identify these leadership behaviors in are unassuming. I think often in our business environments, we, you know, we always value the charismatic or the outspoken or the, um, you know, the loudest person in the room, but recognizing that that's not really leadership. That's just, you know, that's somebody's personality. It might look like leadership, but it's just not. And so knowing the behaviors and then trying to work with and through other people who share them and helping them identify that they themselves are actually leaders can be key. Wow. That would be so powerful. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking back to all these meetings I've done over my career and the bombastic person, everybody says either, oh, here he goes again, or yes, uh, he's the leader. Let's listen to him because he's just basically beating us down. So we're going to do what they want to do. A lot of times, not the brightest person in the room. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, just the loudest. Yeah, exactly. Or it's like, okay, we'll do it your way if you promise to shut up. And uh, yeah, I, I know several people like that. And uh, they, a lot, the problem with a lot of people like that is they, they have a very hard time shutting up long enough to actually see what's going on around them. So they're really, they're in this vacuum. And, and they're, a lot of times they're very worried about what's going on because they're getting zero feedback from anybody because nobody's talking to them because they never give them a chance. You're, you're absolutely right. The power of the introvert, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> introverts may, um, you know, the, the unsung heroes sometimes of organizations are introverts. They may not be the loudest, but they're thinking about things and they're not to be discounted. Well, one of the biggest tips I ever learned on this show was, uh, I can't remember the book, but basically he said, like, you don't have to resolve everything at the meeting. If you have introverts at the meeting, there's nothing wrong with giving a call an hour later or the next day and say, hey, what did you think of that meeting? Anything that uh, I should be knowing uh, know about? Yeah, absolutely. Struck out to you. Thoughts? No, I, I, I agree. There's Again, there's a lot of introverts in business environments and you may have to coax their point of view but their point of view is probably well thought out they've been sitting on it for a while and it's something that needs to be heard absolutely and then bring it up and say i was just talking with one of our members the other day and they said this you don't even name them but everybody in the room if they start saying oh my gosh that's a brilliant idea the person that came up with idea will feel much better about themselves but they're going to feel better about themselves in a way that they're comfortable instead of calling out oh joe here he came up with this amazing idea they don't want to hear that if they're an introvert that's the worst thing that could happen so yeah being aware of of different personalities and working within that realm is critically important to great leadership for sure i think so i think that goes back to the inclusion component of leaders you know the best leaders who i've worked in around they made everybody feel like their point mattered so it's it's interesting as we think about leadership there certainly is the interpersonal you know your relationship with yourself but ultimately there is the intrapersonal you know your, your relationship with other people and just being able to make sure that people recognize that you value their input you value diverse diversity of thought and that you actually actually do value diversity of thought I think is really helpful when you're seeking to build influence oh yeah it's nothing like hearing your answer or your idea a week after suggesting it and then not getting credit for it and rolling your eyes uh, and say, oh, geez, there he goes again, stealing my ideas. 
We've been talking about Spark, how to lead yourself and others to greater success. And we've been chatting with Angie. Angie, it was awesome chatting with you today. Hey, you too. I appreciate the opportunity, Bob. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's wonderful. Thanks for listening. Please share this interview if you think your network of business friends would benefit from it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite Android app. Also, don't forget to check out www.businessbooktalk.com for more business book interviews.